hitting back against a rogue, out-of-control United States Supreme clearly. Court. Ruling after ruling shows that it's out of step with where America mm-hmm. is morally, ethically, and legally as it, as it pushes its right-wing agenda down the throats of America. And America and democracy is fighting back. The latest, we have the Senate, the group of senators, Senator Whitehouse, Senator Durbin, Senator um, uh, Schumer, calling for hearings, trying to get the chief justice to appear in front of their committee, which they control as Democrats are in control of the Senate, to have Mm -hmm. him answer for Mm -hmm. the continuing revelations of unethical behavior by Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Mm -hmm. Gorsuch, and others who have gotten into bed with their donors, with the Federalist Society, Mm -hmm. taking uh, lavish trips, having their uh, college tuition and private school tuition paid for, selling raw property, land and property and real estate to people that have business before the court, all of that. And, of course, this machine that Roberts has built is spitting out attacks on democracy and civil liberties at a regular pace, picked up in the last term when this this Supreme Court, feeling its oats, feeling it had the numbers and the power to do it, addressed a Second Amendment gun rights, reproductive rights, um, uh, First Amendment uh, and racism in America and affirmative action and race-based equality all in one term. It all came out in the wrong direction as far as the majority of the American public are concerned. And now United for Democracy, representing labor unions and progressive organizations and religious organizations from Jewish to Christian to Muslim, women's rights organizations, reproductive rights organizations, voting rights organizations, representing the entire spectrum of gender, uh, sexuality, religion, national origin in America have all fought back. And now in an open letter to the leadership, the Democratic leadership is really who they're speaking to in the Senate, you know, including, like I said, Schumer, Durbin, uh, and uh, White House are calling for a series of investigative hearings, right, real action in order to for their re- their, immediate removal. Reform once and for all a corrupt and opaque U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. Let me read to you Fucking from the destroyed. open letter, which we hope will be the final straw, the tipping point that leads to the opening of this investigative hearings and gives them cover, if you will, political cover, political will to do this, because this is what the people are demanding. So we have, for instance, in the open letter, let me read excerpts from it, because it's very powerful. And it really expresses the point that we've been making here on the Midas Touch Network. We write today, on behalf of the tens of millions of Americans we represent, to urge Congress to finally address a broken and captured Supreme Court that is overturning precedents, shattering judicial norms, and consistently sliding Residing with billionaires, massive corporations, and their extreme right-wing allies over workers, families, communities, yeah. and our democracy. How can we undo all that damage? and corruption at the court have undermined public trust and made...
see if I can post on this one. No way to undo all the damage they've already done. This action isn't allowed. <laughs> Mockery of the idea it's that every hard. American should be treated equally under the law. As a co-equal branch of government with constitutional responsibility to structure the federal courts and create law, Congress should conduct a thorough investigation and take action to restore a fair and independent judiciary. Formal congressional hearings and oversight would be a strong step forward. Congress advancing a legislative agenda that would rein in judicial corruption, protect our checks and balances, restore the rule of law, hold justices accountable, and preserve our freedoms and democracy. The letter goes on from this grassroots organization to say, this Supreme Court majority has gone too far on behalf of their donors and benefactors. Enough is enough. People across the country, including the tens of millions we represent, are increasingly disillusioned with today's biased and unfair Supreme Court. We want a Supreme Court that protects our freedom to make a good living, to breathe clean air and drink clean water, to walk through our communities without the fear of gun violence, to make our own health care decisions, and to know our kids will learn and grow at school. Congress not only has the power, but a sworn constitutional duty to bring transparency and accountability to a Supreme Court that has been captured by wealthy and well-connected special interests and to ensure equal justice under the law. That's where we are as of today. We can only hope that the leaders, the Democratic leaders in the Senate, because because the House is gone, the House is, is, is full tilt MAGA, you know, if McCarthy ever thought he could run something that he could be proud of in the House and, and go down and, and like Nancy Pelosi is one of the greatest speakers in the history of our country, it's gone. It's over. It was over the day he was barely elected on the 20th ballot. MAGA runs the House. Got to look to the Senate, which is under the control of the Democrats, to do this. We've had a series of decisions. For some people that are just sort of tuning in here, what are they talking about in the letter about a Supreme Court out of control. In the last term alone, they have broadened uh, gun rights and limited the ability of local government, uh, state, local authority. To limit sensibly uh, guns and gun ownership and gun use. So it's against responsible, reasonable gun control. And that's New York, the New York Rifle Association case at the beginning of the term. So they took on guns. You know, all those things in, in uh, polite uh, cocktail parties you're not supposed to talk about, that's what the Supreme Court took on because they had the numbers this year to shove down our throats their MAGA agenda. So now reasonable gun control is out. The only gun control that's allowed in America now, after Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion, is gun control that was around at the time of the founding of this country. 
17 and 1800s. If it didn't exist then, it's not going to exist now, despite the, the tremendous increase in the potency and firepower of firearms that could never have been contemplated by our founding fathers or people that lived on the frontier of America in the 1800s. Reproductive rights, the Dobbs decision last May. That took away, for the first time, the constitutional right of a woman to make her own choice about her bodily autonomy. Right? Took away a constitutional right that had been super precedent. Precedent upon precedent upon precedent. That you're never supposed to touch. The Supreme Court said, you know what? Let's leave it to the states. Meaning, we know that two-thirds of the states are red and they're going to get rid of abortion. So that's where we're going to throw it. Then they moved on just this past term. To, under the guise of protecting the First Amendment, instead they've ingrained, right, and they have uh, ingrained racism and bigotry into our society and given a permission slip to racism and bigotry, under the guise of protecting the First Amendment. So if you're a creative professional, whatever that is, and you, and you want to get money, because, you know, it's your job, and you want to get money from the public before... Anybody that was in the business of public accommodation and wanted to get money from public people couldn't be bigot. Couldn't be racist. Now you can. Under 303... Creative, the new lawsuit, the new uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. You don't want to serve blacks, Jews, members of the LGBTQ plus community. You can you can say no. I only serve white people. And that's under the false the false flag of the First Amendment. And then on affirmative action, or using race and recognizing racial inequality in America that continues to exist, even though we're 60 years beyond the civil rights movement. We're only 30 years beyond whites only in certain sections of the South. We're only, we're only yesterday beyond cross burnings in the South. But no, to the Supreme Court, not only is justice blind, justice is blind, justice is colorblind. And we've solved our racism problem, so we no longer have to have public universities and colleges look at race at all in entering in their entering class and coming up with diversity. No longer do we need to lend a helping hand to those that are disadvantaged in our society. Because everybody has the same advantages to the Supreme Court. Doesn't everybody go on lavish jets and vacations um, around the world with their benefactors and their donors? The answer to that is no, they don't. But under the North Carolina and um, Harvard case, we now have that. So this is the out of control. I'm just listing five out of a hundred decisions in the last two years by the Supreme Court that shows that they're out of muck, run amok then run that parallel to all of the transparency that we're now getting, not, not because they want to do it, but because investigative reporting done by the enemy of the people, 
the media doing their First Amendment job of ripping the mask off these phonies on the Supreme Court and showing how they are influenced by their donors, their benefactors, right, on the Federalist Society, on the Supreme Right Wing, how they lecture at the rightest of right wings of law school, supported by the Federalist Society, how they go away on vacations and holidays, how they do personal transactions, selling property, getting money to their benefactors in this completely hermetically sealed world of, of moneyed interests that are influencing decisions and policies at the Supreme Court. If it wasn't for, for ProPublica, would we know about, and the answer is no, would we know about how, um, how rancid the ethical compass or how cracked the ethical compass of Sam Alito and um, Clarence Thomas are? Would we know about Sam Alito's wife having oil and gas uh, contracts on her Oklahoma property, like some sort of there will be blood episode, while her husband is ruling against environmental protection policies? Sorry, Sam, I didn't know your, your wife was a robber baron. Your wife was an oil mogul. While you're, the rest of us have to drink from water supply that's now polluted because you refuse and have completely gutted the clean water. Wow, I didn't know about that, about Alita's wife. Is an oil mogul And he has voted against environmental protections. Neither. Or that there was people who were in front of you, right, business before the court, on cases that you decided that you vacationed with in Alaska. Right, for a week in some, you know, glamping. sort of glamping, you know, a private chef, you know, fret, uh, luxury linens uh, type of environment at some exclusive lodge in Alaska. Sorry, the rest of us aren't able to do that. This is the corruption that the uh, United for Democracy is talking about in their letter. What we hope here on the Midas Touch Network is that the groundswell of rising up by grassroots entities to go after the Supreme Court and shed a light and put a spotlight on it is going to result in the Democrats that control the Senate 
doing something about this. Stop talking about it. Yeah. Stop talking about doing something about it. Stop trying yeah. to get Justice Roberts to come before you and open up investigative hearings, as only you can in control of the Senate while you control the Senate. Yeah. I know summer vacation's coming up, but democracy and justice yeah, doesn't take a holiday. Ass, and you shouldn't either. Call a special session. Okay, Dick Durbin, no time to Charles Schumer, roll over and play dead White House, again. Senators all, Democratic senators all, right? Hold these hearings. Propose legislation. You you have the power of the purse. The federal courts only exist because you fund them. Stop funding them unless they do the right thing. You're not interfering with the co-equal branches of government. You're not interfering with the separation of powers by doing your job in checks and balance. It's not three separate spheres, right? When we talk about separation of powers, that's within the context of checks and balances, which means that each of the co-equal branches has to be a check against the other, right? Congress and the Supreme Court, a check against an out-of-control executive branch. The executive branch doing its part against an out-of-control Congress. And when the Supreme Court is rogue, off the chain, and out of control, then the executive branch and the Senate have to do something about it. And that's what United for Democracy in the letter is proposing. I'm going to continue to stay on top of this issue in hot takes just like this one, only on the Midas Touch Network. We pull all this together. We do a long-format podcast here on the Midas Touch Network called Legal AF, Wednesday. It is morally, ethically, right. and legally as it, as it pushes right, its right-wing agenda down the throats of America. And America and democracy is fighting back. The latest, we have the Senate, American the group of senators, Senator Whitehouse, back. Senator Durbin, Senator um, uh, Schumer, calling for hearings, trying to get the Chief Justice to appear in front of their committee, which they control as Democrats are in control of the Senate, to have him answer for the continuing revelations of unethical behavior by Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and others who have gotten into bed with their donors, with the Federalist Society, taking uh, lavish trips, having their t uh, college tuition and private school tuition paid for, selling raw property, land and property, real estate, to people that have business before the court, all of that. And, of course, this machine that Roberts has built is spitting out attacks on democracy and civil liberties at a regular pace. Yeah. But stripping away our rights. They've already stripped away our rights.
Pick up a fucking phone. Pick up the phone. Make a free phone call, I would. Okay. Trust it for press. Trista for press. So the Supreme Court's Supreme Court has already stripped away several of our rights, putting us back a century or more. When is Sleepy Joe Biden going to wake up? Sleepy going to wake up and weigh in on the situation. As president, I'd use soft power. Make a free phone call. Yeah, demand the resignations. That's what I would do. If I were press. Supreme Court. Oops, Supreme. I have to be careful about my uh, TikTok. I just got a couple of. couple of. Um, removed videos and they gave me a warning about you know I have to I appealed there's one that I can't appeal it's it's got a picture of uh, Trump as the uh, you know in Nazi regalia and apparently I can't do that I guess I understand but uh, they make it so that uh, yeah it's their platform so you have to, uh, you know, here's the difference between me and Mr. Assface. Nazi dump is I learned from my mistakes. <laughs> Sleepy Joe Biden.
Okay, I'm convinced it all sleepy, Joe. All sleepy. Joe Biden has to do is pick up the goddamn phone for GD and call all six Supreme Court justices. And demand their fucking resignations immediately. I'm going to and and not take no for an answer. By the way, he stole that. Uh, by the way, by the BTW. Many women's lives are at stake right now because of Joe Biden's inaction as your problem. I'm your problem and until you elect me, then everything will be hunky-dory. I'm going to do both terms. I'll be wildly popular. Maybe I'll have different... I'm up to having a different vice president the first term to the second term. Maybe just to give, uh, you know, to give, uh, allow people to have the experience of being vice president, you know, maybe like a, well, we've had a black president, how about an Asian or a other, you know, woman or my indigenous, how about an indigenous vice president, I think, uh, I think I could come too seriously because maybe like run with other. The thing is, like everything that we've done before, that that would be a good idea. What's your name, Jill? Um, to run with the Native American candidate, chosen candidate. How about you guys? You guys choose. In, in, in exchange for your support.
they choose exchange for uh, the indigenous communities support I choose my VP. Okay. Add button. Okay, so here's my message. The Supreme Court has already stripped away several of our rights, putting us back a century or more. When is sleepy Joe Biden going to wake up and weigh in on the situation? As president, I'd use soft power. Make a free phone call. Christopher Perez. Not accept no. Okay, so criticize. Mm, I can't post Instagram. Uh, like Democrats. No, Democrats would like that. Republicans you uh, Arizona Democratic Party candidates Dodge.
I am uh, I am vote.
Thanks for your. Just uh, for Preds. Trump for prison. Trump for prison. One thousand one posts. Let's see here. So I'm copying that. Pop quiz. Hmm. Okay. My message to young people. A message to the ladies. My apologies to staunch Biden supporters, but I am a Democratic Party candidate, and the last time I checked, primaries were open to new candidates. Health competition is healthy, no? Since we've never had a woman president, I'm throwing my hat in the ring because we need a woman candidate desperately. We need a woman president now. President, we need her now. And we need her now. How about half women in Congress now? How about women president will fight for all women like no man can? Michael Kopak, a gifted attorney, does hot takes for Midas Touch Legal AF podcast. At the intersection of politics and the law. Thanks me for running for president. I want to thank him for thanking me. Because, because uh, everyone's so scared. It's obviously a long uphill battle even to get on the ballot.
In this hostile environment for all candidates based on campaign money raised alone, I have no desire to help perpetuate the failed policies of the past. We need new, fresh new ideas and we need them now. We need fresh young people, fresh people, young people, women, minorities, new people, new fucking faces. We need term limits. We need term limits immediately. Immediately. We had half women in Congress losing our bodily autonomy would not be revoked like it is now. We let old white farts set the agenda in this country and allow the corruption and, quite frankly, treason to go unaccounted for. White House these days is silent, too silent, for fear of being too political. Grandpa Brandon chooses to be in the background of these critical debates facing the rest of us. Women are dying in Texas and many other states. Doctors are, uh, um, women, black people. are dying in Texas and many other states and, and doctors are being put in jail for giving them treatment. By the way, in Asia.
Joe Biden isn't saying anything about it, but I will, and that's uh, about uh, but I will, and that's what makes me the best, better, and best candidate. Best. Well, one of the things. Right, a list of new candidates. I'll copy that and post on Arizona Democratic women candidates. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. Okay, federation of okay, Supreme Court has already stripped away several of our rights, putting us back 100 years up in the last term when this this Supreme Court feeling its oats feeling it had the numbers and the power to do it addressed the Second Amendment gun rights reproductive rights um, uh, First Amendment uh, and racism in America and affirmative action and race-based equality all in one term and all came out in the wrong direction as far as the majority of the American public are concerned and now, United for Democracy, representing labor unions and progressive organizations and religious organizations from Jewish to Christian to Muslim, women's rights organizations, reproductive rights organizations, voting rights organizations, representing the entire spectrum of gender, uh, sexuality, religion, national origin in America have all fought back. And now, in an open letter, to the leadership, the Democratic leadership is really who they're speaking to in the Senate. You know, including, like I said, Schumer, Durbin, uh, and uh, White House are calling for a series of investigative hearings, right? Real action in order to, uh, in their, their view, reform once and for all a corrupt and opaque U.S. Supreme Court. Let me read to you from the open letter, which we hope will be the final straw, the tipping point that leads to the opening of this investigative hearings and gives them cover, if you will, political cover, political will to do this, because this is what the people are demanding. So we have, for instance, in the open letter, let me read excerpts from it, because it's very powerful. 
and it really expresses the point that we've been making here on the Minus Touch Network. We write today on behalf of the tens of millions of Americans we represent to urge Congress to finally address a broken and captured Supreme Court that is overturning precedents, shattering traditional norms, and consistently sliding or siding with billionaires, massive corporations, and their extreme right-wing allies over workers, families, communities, and our democracy. The revelations about ethics and corruption at the court have undermined public trust and made a mockery of the idea that every American should be treated equally under the law as a co-equal branch of government with constitutional responsibility to structure the federal courts and create law, Congress should conduct a thorough investigation and take action to restore a fair and independent judiciary. Formal congressional hearings and oversight would be a strong step forward. Congress advancing a legislative agenda that would rein in judicial corruption, protect our checks and balances, restore the rule of law, hold justices accountable, and preserve our freedoms and democracy. The letter goes on from this grassroots organization to say, this Supreme Court majority has gone too far on behalf of their donors and benefactors. Enough is enough. People across the country, including the tens of millions we represent, are increasingly disillusioned with today's biased and unfair Supreme Court. We want a Supreme Court that protects our freedom to make a good living, to breathe clean air and drink clean water, to walk through our communities without the fear of gun violence, to make our own health care decisions, and to know our kids will learn and grow at school. Congress not only has the power, but a sworn constitutional duty to bring transparency and accountability to a Supreme Court that has been captured by wealthy and well-connected special interests and to ensure equal justice under the law. That's where we are as of today. We can only hope that the leaders, the Democratic leaders in the Senate, because the House is gone, the House is, is, is full tilt MAGA. You know, if McCarthy ever thought he could run something that he could be proud of in the House and, and go down and, and, like Nancy Pelosi is one of the greatest speakers in the history of our country, it's gone, it's over. It was over the day he was barely elected on the 20th ballot. MAGA runs the House. Got to look to the Senate, which is under control of the Democrats, to do this. We've had a series of decisions. For some people that are just sort of tuning in here, what are they talking about in the letter about a Supreme Court out of control? In the last term alone, they have broadened uh, gun rights and limited the ability of local government, uh, state and local authorities, to limit sensibly uh, guns and gun ownership and gun use. So it's against responsible, reasonable gun control. And that's New York, the New York Rifle Association case at the beginning of the term. So they took on guns. You know, all those things in, in the polite cocktail parties we're not supposed to talk about, that's what the Supreme Court took on because they had the numbers this year to shove down our throats their back agenda. So now reasonable gun control is out. The only gun control that's allowed in America now, after Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion, is gun control that was around at the time of the founding of this country, 17 and 1800s. If it didn't exist then, it's not going to exist now, despite the, the tremendous increase in the potency of firepower and firearms. 
that could never have been contemplated by our founding fathers or people that lived on the frontier of America in the 1800s. Reproductive rights, the Dobbs decision last May. That took away for the first time the constitutional right of a woman to make her own choice about her bodily autonomy. Right? Took away a constitutional right that had been super precedent, precedent upon precedent upon precedent that you're never supposed to touch. The Supreme Court said, you know what? Let's leave it to the states, meaning we know that two-thirds of the states are red and they're gonna get rid of abortion, so that's where we're gonna throw it. Then they moved on just this past term to under the guise of protecting the First Amendment. Instead, they've ingrained, right? And they have uh, ingrained racism and bigotry into our society and given a permission slip to racism and bigotry under the guise of protecting the First Amendment. So if you're a creative professional, whatever that is, and you and you want to get money, because you know it's your job, and you want to get money for the public, before anybody that was in the business of public accommodation and wanted to get money from public people, couldn't be bigots, couldn't be racist, now you can. Under 303 Creative, the new lawsuit, the new uh, rule by the Supreme Court, you don't want to serve blacks, Jews, members of the LGBTQ plus community, you can, you can say, no, I only serve white people. And that's under the false, the false flag of the First Amendment. And then on affirmative action, or using race and recognizing racial inequality in America that continues to exist, even though we're 60 years beyond the Civil Rights Movement, we're only 30 years beyond whites only in certain sections of the South. We're only, we're only yesterday beyond cross burnings in the South. A no to the Supreme Court, not only is justice blind, justice is blind, justice is colorblind. And we've solved our racism problem, so we no longer have to have public universities and colleges look at race at all in entering in their entering class and coming up with diversity. No longer do we need to lend a helping hand to those that are disadvantaged in our society, because everybody has the same advantages to the Supreme Court. Doesn't everybody go on lavish jets and vacations um, around the world with their benefactors and their donors? The answer to that is no, they don't. And under the North Carolina and um, Harvard case, we now have that. So this is the out of control. I'm just listing five out of a hundred decisions in the last two years by the Supreme Court that shows that they're out of run them up. Then run that parallel to all of the transparency that we're now getting, not, not because they want to do it, but because investigative reporting done by the enemy of the people, the media, doing their First Amendment job of ripping the mask off these phonies on the Supreme Court and showing how they are influenced by their donors, their benefactors, right, on the Federalist Society, on the Supreme Right Wing, how they lecture at the rightest of right wings of law schools, supported by the Federalist Society, how they go away on vacations and holidays, how they do personal transactions, selling property, getting money to their benefactors in this completely hermetically sealed world of, of moneyed interests that are influencing decisions and policies at the Supreme Court. If it wasn't for, for ProPublica, would we know about, the answer is no, would we know about how, um, how rancid the ethical compass, or how cracked the ethical compass of Sam Alito and um, Clarence Thomas are. 
when we know about Sam Alito's wife having oil and gas uh, contracts on her Oklahoma property, like some sort of there will be blood episode, while her husband is ruling against environmental protection policies. Sorry, Sam, I didn't know your, your wife was a robber baron. Your wife was an oil mogul. Well, you're, the rest of us have to drink from water supply that's now polluted because you refused and have completely gutted the Clean Water Act. Or that there was people who were in front of you, right, business before the court, on cases that you decided that you vacationed with in Alaska, right, for a week in some, you know, glamping, some sort of glamping, you know, a private chef, you know, fret, uh, luxury linens uh, type of environment at some exclusive lodge in Alaska. Sorry, the rest of us aren't able to do that. This is the corruption that the uh, United Democracy is talking about in their letter. What we hope here on the Midas Touch Network is that the groundswell of rising up by grassroots Smith can use in criminal prosecutions. We're seeing We're it all over again in a civil case brought by two Fulton County election workers, uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, against Rudy Giuliani, where Julie, Rudy Giuliani, who's been a lawyer for, well, he's, he's now suspended he in one state lawyer. and soon to be discarded another, but was a lawyer for 50 years, is screwing up the exchange of documents so badly that he's given the opponents, the plaintiff's lawyers, the opportunity to file a motion for sanctions, which they did on 7-11, what an unlucky date for Rudy Giuliani, against him, telling the judge that Rudy Giuliani in the last 18 months has not meaningfully participated in discovery in producing documents or evidence in this case, despite his requirement under the law and court order to do so. And as a result, he should get the equivalent of a civil case death penalty. The case should be decided against him at this juncture without even going to trial. That a default judgment should be entered against him because of what he's doing. That is the first headline for the motion that was just filed by Shea Bass and Rudy Freeman's lawyers. Rudy Giuliani you know, you know, could likely seek, he'll likely be hit with default judgment as a result of game playing and failure to cooperate and his good faith obligations to discover. Headline one. Headline two is that Rudy produced privilege logs, which I'm going to explain in a little bit of a breakout session of Legal AF right here. Privilege logs listing 25 pages, all of the documents he is not at the moment going to produce, but that he has in his possession, claiming some sort of privilege, which means it has to be ultimately decided by the judge after seeing those documents in camera, a Latin way of saying only the judge gets to see them first, and then decide whether they go over to the other side. Now, you're supposed to, well, let's, let me give you the, 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 the teaser first for the privilege log, and I'll tell you how poorly done the privilege log was for Giuliani, whether or not housing is problems. Firstly, let's talk about the names in it. Even if I don't know what's in it, this just, if you ever had any doubt in this relevant time period of the end of the election in early November through Jan 6th and beyond, who Rudy Giuliani was working for and who was in his uh, and who was in his group, his gang, his civil conspiracy, his criminal conspiracy gang? Well, just look at his text message lists, and you'll have no doubt. 
So if you go through there, you see the following names and groups and combinations of text messages. Bernie Carrick, disgraced, disgraced former police commander in New York who went to jail and was uh, pardoned or had his sentence commuted by Donald Trump. Jenna Ellis, who just barely didn't lose her law license for all the work she did with Rudy Giuliani as an incompetent election lawyer spreading falsehoods about the election where she had to admit to her bar association, her bar grievance committee, that she uh, to she told untruths about the election. Christina Bob, right, who's cooperating with the Department of Justice and was the lawyer for Donald Trump for all things Mar-a-Lago and beyond, and signed the certificate falsely claiming that everything in this envelope was all of the top secret information that Donald Trump retained at Mar-a-Lago, and that was a lie. So you also have uh, Victoria Tensing. Victoria Tensing is a, uh, a woman who practices law with her husband, right-wing, MAGA right-wing. I mean, she just posted, we'll put it up here in my hot take, she just posted on her own social media that the um, arrest and the indictment in absentia because the guy fled the country to Cyprus, this spy for China of Israeli and U.S. citizenship, um, that that whole uh, Chinese illegal lobbying, arms brokering, selling oil for the Iranians while an American citizen, that's all made up because he was also going to be a whistleblower for Joe Biden. But that, so that was her tweet we just saw. That Victoria Tensing, of course, is inside this, you know, QAnon fake election uh, huddle with Team Crazy and its captain Rudy Giuliani while they're trying to overthrow the election, at least in the court system. So Victoria Tensing, you have Catherine Fries. Where is Catherine Fries? We have to put her on the back of a milk carton. Because Catherine Fries used to be a lawyer who was very proud to work with uh, Rudy Giuliani and all the others. Um, but she's nowhere to be found. She's so nowhere to be found that the lawyers in this defamation case against Rudy Giuliani have moved the judge to try to serve her, to find her, to serve her through alternate methods. She doesn't want anything to do with this case. She's a bar member somewhere, but they can't get her served. So, But, but at one time, she was happily and notoriously tweeting and texting and emailing with Rudy Giuliani. So she's in the text in the emails. Lara Logan, right-wing MAGA um, journalist. Mark Meadows is all over these texts with Rudy Giuliani during these relevant time periods, November through January. Sydney Powell, she should be disbarred as well. Cleta Mitchell, subject of criminal investigation by Jack Smith and the Department of Justice. Senator Townsend, why not throw him in there? Speaker of the Georgia House, Ralston. Well, we know what that one was about because um, that was recorded. And Fawny uh, Willis, the prosecutor in Fulton County, is investigating this phone call between Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, and the Speaker of the House, Ralston, in Georgia. Same kind of phone call that Rudy and Donald Trump made to Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, in Arizona, trying to get him to throw out the election and participate in the fake elector conspiracy. Ken Cheesebro. Come, come on down. You're on the text and email chain with, with uh, Rudy Giuliani, as we suspected, one of the architects of uh, using the Jan 6 Congress hearing and fake electors to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Um, and then you have interesting emails with, with Ray Line regarding lines that I'm sure Jack Smith is super excited about, like 
um, a 12-16-2020 text or email that says POTUS findings, P-O-T-U-S. That is exactly the moment leading to the December 18th meeting in the White House that went on for six hours involving Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, and the Overstock.com guy, they threw him in there, to talk about uh, uh, suspending the Constitution, invoking martial law, and seizing the uh, election equipment in order for him to cling to power, Trump to cling to power, and make presidential findings to support that conduct. So they were up to the point of presidential findings to support martial law. And that's in this cache of documents currently being withheld, but soon to be uh, sent over to the lawyers in the Shea Moss, Ruby Freeman, civil defamation case. You see how I said at the top of the hot take, civil cases as a byproduct, pay dividends that can be used in criminal cases. And we're seeing it here. Boris Epstein, there's somebody who's likely to be indicted very soon by by, uh, Jack Smith. Currently a lawyer for Donald Trump, but that never that never stopped anybody else who was a lawyer for Donald Trump either getting indicted, arrested, or put in jail. And Boris Epstein is probably next on that list based on his conduct. He, Bernie Carrick, Jason Miller, uh, a very close advisor to Donald Trump, and Christina Bob are having texts and emails all during the relevant time period. The head of the Republican National Committee, Rona McDaniel, come on down. You're going to be caught up in this conspiracy. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. With a daily drive and enthusiasm to get things Who is Myrna Taraf? Well, according to um, Jenna Ellis and a tweet that she that she put out, she Jenna Ellis and I got to get you the rest of this list because it's just it's just fascinating. We're all part of an election integrity board, a phony election election integrity board that was formed by Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani to run around as if they were trying to protect the election and not steal it from Joe Biden and the voters. And on this board, which are all part of this chain of conspiracy and in the ele- in the emails and text messages for Rudy Giuliani are, here's the list on the text, Jenna Ellis, mm-hmm. Ken Paxton, the soon to be impeached uh, attorney general of Texas, uh-huh. Real P. Navarro, Peter Navarro, who's also a subject Real and not a target P. of criminal investigation by Jack Smith because Correct. of his role in, the, in uh, the fake elector scandal. Bernie Carrick, we've talked about him already. Uh, Seb Gorka, right wing extremist. And Myrna Taraf. Good for you, Myrna. Glad to see that Rudy Giuliani had to now throw you under the bus and properly reveal these things. Now, I said at the top of the hot take, his privilege log was garbage. Privilege log garbage. Why? Because I've been doing this for 33 years. And in a privilege log, you have to list enough data and information not to reveal the privilege you're allegedly protecting, if you you do have such a privilege, but enough for the judge and the other side to be able to have a coherent conversation about what the document is. So you don't have to reveal the privilege, but if you have a document, I'll give you an example. If Rudy Giuliani emailed Donald Trump to talk about uh, the fake elector scandal, 
then it should be listed on the privilege log. Author, Giuliani. Recipient, Donald Trump. CCs, if there are any, list them. Subject matter, right? Then you'd have to come up with something that doesn't reveal the privilege. Uh, elector certificates, I guess that would be enough. Uh, in battleground states. Uh, and then the date of that, and then you have to give it a, a what's called a Bates number, a serial number at the bottom that's assigned to the case by the lawyers so they can keep track of these things. And then you can have this debate, and the judge can take a look at it, at it in camera, which is, again, she gets to see it first, not the other side, and then make the decision. But his his log, we'll put up one page of it, his log is completely incoherent. Sometimes he doesn't even list the people's last names. It's like Andrew. I assume one of the texts is with his son, Andrew Giuliani, with all these other people, which would effectively waive the privilege. But who knows? He puts Michael, he puts Andrew. Um, the one that's are interesting is there doesn't seem to be any text with POTUS, with Trump, which is totally ridiculous. The other thing that is hanging, hanging Rudy Giuliani on a short rope of his own making is that remember, in this, or let me tell you, that in cases, lawyers go out to get documents from third parties. It's called third-party discovery practice. You use a subpoena, and you go to somebody like Christina Bob and say, give me all the documents you have of communications with Rudy Giuliani. And she produced those, and so did other people. And the problem for Rudy is they produce things that he didn't produce, <laughs> which means he's hiding them or he's lost them. And that's what the... Lawyers have said in Probably their motion for sanctions, we don't know if he destroyed them, if he has them, if he doesn't, doesn't have matter. them, but it it's doesn't so matter, because he had an obligation to preserve them. Yeah. And you, Judge, in March, liar. April, and May, at hearings, Whoa. warned him that he needed to preserve them. And his lawyers have come to court and said, well, we, we, think, we think he preserved them. We're not sure if he preserved them. Maybe he preserved them. <laughs> Wrong. These are the wrong responses of federal court to a federal judge. And then, let me just bring it full circle, the federal judge that's presiding over this case, right, is Beryl Powell. For those that follow Legal AF and Hot Takes Like Mine regularly, that name will ring a bell. She was, until recently, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court. And when she's not trying civil cases like this one, she had responsibility over all of the grand juries, including Jack Smith's grand juries. That's my stage voice, right? Uh, my stage whisper. And in that capacity, she evaluated whether, for instance, the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applied to strip Donald Trump from attorney-client privilege and therefore have those documents go to the government because they were no longer covered by privilege. And force lawyers, Pat Cipollone, White House General Counsel, White House Counsel, Eric Hirschman, Deputy White House Counsel, um, ultimately Rudy Giuliani, uh, Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob, found that they all had to testify. Donald Trump couldn't stop it because Donald Trump was more likely than not participating in a crime or fraud concerning the Mar-a-Lago documents, for example. And therefore, did not have the privilege. Did not have the privilege of having the privilege of attorney-client privilege. There's there's a good way to sum up one sentence and three uses of privilege. Same thing could happen here. This judge is educated. She has a learning curve when it comes to crime, fraud, Trump, and others. So wait till the lawyers, if if they don't get the default judgment that they wanted, 
and they go for these documents, which they're going to, they tell the judge, even if you found that there was an, a, an initial proper assertion of privilege over them, judge, crime fraud exception, they're all participating in a crime. You know that from the work that you did, Your Honor, related to Jack Smith's prosecutions. You see how this civil criminal ecosystem, this flow, these trade winds all kind of run into each other? Uh, and that's what we're talking about here on this optic. So, to summarize, civil cases help criminal cases because discovery sometimes is even more extensive there. And you get golden nuggets that stumble out. Just the way that the Dominion case against Fox, uh, against Fox News, right, created dividends for Jack Smith and also got Tucker Carlson fired. Same thing here. The Ruby Freeman Shea Moss case, which should have been settled a long time ago by, by Rudy Giuliani. In fact, the lawyers even mentioned that, that he had the potential for a settlement in his hands and he let it slip through because he's cheap and he's stupid. And I don't care what he was in the 90s in New York, that's what he is today. And soon to be at a disgraced former lawyer and a disgrace to the profession. So they said, oh, well, he, had it. he could have had a settlement with us, but he blew it. Just like he's blowing the case. We shouldn't even be talking about documents that they obtained. We, should, we wouldn't even know about them if he had settled the case. But attention, Jack Smith. If you don't already have all the documents that they got in their discovery, go subpoena. And I'm sure they'll turn them over that day. All the documents that Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman's lawyers have. in their disposal from what they got from Rudy Giuliani. And since you've already taken a proffer, remember Rudy Giuliani went in two weeks ago and testified under oath, not to the grand jury, but to the, uh, the Department of Justice and Jack Smith's team. He was given a queen for the day immunity, meaning as long as he doesn't lie at that moment, they won't use anything that they, he tells them against him if they decide to indict him. If they have the information independently, then there's, then there's no deal. But they won't use his exact words against him as long as he's telling the truth. Now, the prosecutors have to, have to be wondering whether based on these texts and emails that are now currently covered by privilege, but they'll be able to see soon whether he was telling the truth when he testified under oath to them. And if he wasn't, when Rudy Giuliani, not if, is indicted, which I've already predicted on Legal AF, they will include a new count for lying under oath to the federal government when they came in. Bringing to a conclusion my hot take about how civil cases can, can positively impact justice in criminal cases. I do hot takes just like this one, connecting dots that you see and some that you don't even see. And I didn't even see until I started preparing the hot take only on the Midas Touch Network. We pull it all together. 
in a long-format podcast on YouTube. You can subscribe for free on the Midas Touch Network. We call it Legal AF. I do it on Wednesdays, and I do it on Saturdays with my co-anchors Ben Micellis and Karen Friedman at Niffalo. I'm Michael Popak. You can follow me on all things social media, including threads at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF Reporting. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. To keep up with the most important news she of the day. What no are you waiting Instagram. for? Follow us now. Bob Dylan. Catapulted folk music roads rapidly changing full documentary amplified. Rock and roll died of its own weight in a way. Folk scene was happening at the village. It was just this sort of swamp of clubs and coffee houses. The guitar was like a magnet, you know, it could draw people in. People did get influenced by romantic idea of a guitar and a sound. Sing a sad song. There were all these little factions. There were some people that were just into blues, some people that were just into bluegrass, some people that were just into the protest part of it. How could you beat an era like that? I mean, it was just a great scene and had an energy all its own that's seldom been repeated. The thing about Dylan is that Dylan kind of signified a sea change, and all of a sudden, you wrote your own song. It was just sort of like automatic, as opposed to no one even thought of doing that. And then suddenly, like, everyone didn't really think of doing that. I just thought, that's what you do. He changed everything. He's astonishingly better than almost everything else around him. When he started writing, that, that was a big paradigm shift right there. The bar was then set for, for good songwriting way, way before it was here, then it was here. There is a way to make an entrance. <laughs> American folk music, a broad, loosely defined term covering a range of genres derived from European and African musical forms and brought to the country by settlers of various nationalities. Ballads, hymns, songs and instrumental styles passed on through the generations by an oral tradition, yet constantly evolving. This music was the product of the lower classes, workers, peasants and slaves. By the early 20th century, while some genres had become established in popular culture, others had remained obscure, and these caught the attention of folklorists and archivists looking to study and catalogue traditional musical forms. New advances in recording technology enabled these academics to capture the sounds of America's neglected communities, and discoveries such as Lead Belly in 1933 by father and son folklorists John and Alan Lomax brought this music to a wide audience. And in an America wading through the Great Depression, the most receptive audience to the traditional sounds of folk music were the leftists, who championed these forms that had emanated from the lowest strata of society and which had endured without the interference of commercial interests. 
By the late 1930s, Leadbelly himself was transformed into a heroic figure by the Communist Party of the USA, who were growing considerably at the time, and folk music itself soon became political. There were a lot of things wrong with the Communist Party of the USA, but the folk movement was not one of them. It had its things wrong with the CPUSA problems, for sure. It was ideological. It was sentimental. It was uh, uh, moralistic in a way that wasn't going to convince anybody who didn't already agree with you. All of that stuff. Nevertheless, it was a brilliant creation. It was a creation, the notion of folk music. And it was created primarily, not entirely, by Communist Party intellectuals. In 1940, New York became the center of activity for an emerging folk scene. Here, the leading lights of the movement were establishing its political values while reviving and reassessing its musical parts. Alongside singer-songwriter and activist Josh White, Led Belly and his manager Alan Lomax were two white musicians, the young, middle-class New York native Pete Seeger and a singer and songwriter from Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie. These two artists in particular would become pioneering figures in the redefinition of American folk, penning their own material in the mold of the traditional songs that had inspired them and using the music itself as a vessel for political commentary. They set the template for the artists who would follow in their wake. Pete and Woody meant the world to us. I mean, they were, uh, at, least, at least to me, I mean, I willingly followed the trail of their blaze. I mean, I've always said that uh, if it hadn't been for Pete Seeger, there wouldn't have been a folk music revival, anything approaching. What, what actually happened, when the peak really blazed the trail. I wanted to write songs that sounded like the songs that Woody wrote, except I wanted to try to make them my songs and my time, my, my era. This radical faction of folk music emanating from New York became muted after the end of the Second World War, with fascism apparently defeated and a new enemy emerging, communism. While Guthrie suffered declining health, Seeger formed the Weavers, and this group's less overtly political outlook struck a chord with the public propelled them into the mainstream. Yet by the mid-1950s, both the Red Scare and the Cold War were escalating, and the anti-communist witch hunts led by Senator Joe McCarthy of the House Un-American Activities Committee put an end to the Weavers and derailed Pete Seeger's career. Folk refused to die, With the release of filmmaker Harry Smith's landmark compilation Anthology of American Folk Music in 1952, Introducing obscure recordings from the late 20s and early 30s to a receptive wider audience. And popular group the Kingston Trio emerging as one of the most commercially successful acts in America towards the end of the decade. Despite the brief revolution brought into popular music by rock and roll in the mid-50s, as the country entered the 1960s, a new generation of musicians began looking to the past once again, and word spread of a folk revival. You know, it's seen as this efflorescence. But I actually see it as the gathering storm that begins with Harry Smith, runs through the fact that there were folk hits uh, in, the, in the late 50s, 
like the Carriers, three uh, Greenwich Village folkies who had a big hit with Banana Boat Song, which was then covered by Harry Belafonte, who was not without his folk connections either. I think, see it myself as an organic process. The first great efflorescence of rock and roll, which begins, say, with Maybelline in September of 55, and runs pretty strong through 58, does in fact really begin to tail off between 59 and 62, not as bad as in myth, but nevertheless in a real way so that people are just the right age to turn from the music they like when they were a little younger, it's getting worse, they have new ideas, and, and they pick up on what was already in the air and in their own culture. About that time, we were starting to pick up on the Smithsonian and anthology. People started listening to these old recordings and started finding that these amazing artists, mostly blues artists, but also country artists and Appalachian artists, were not just these mythical figures that were coming to us on these scratchy recordings through the mists of time, but they were actually quite alive and well, most of them, but there was another component to the folk music scene. I would say it started with people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. There was a sort of a branch of folk music that was mostly interested in songs of social relevance, and of course all the wonderful songs that Woody Guthrie had written. So there were a lot of different factions. It wasn't just blues or Appalachian or bluegrass. It was it was everything all at once. This growing interest in folk music spread to Minnesota. Young Robert Zimmerman, whose first band had performed Little Richard numbers at their high school in the large mining town of Hibbick, was one of many to grow disenchanted by the commercialization of rock and roll, and to subsequently be drawn to the earthier sounds offered by artists from the recent past. Growing up in the 1950s, like uh, almost every American kid, his music is not folk music, it's, it's rock and roll and Elvis Presley and Little Richard. Uh, I, I mean, I suppose if you're Arlo Guthrie, then uh, it, it might be different, but uh, you'd be quite an unusual teenager to uh, be into folk music uh, I think, at, at that age. There's a story, in fact, that he was given some old Lead Belly 78s on his graduation, and that was possibly his first introduction to, to its music, and he started learning and playing those songs. of the harbour. 
clubs um, that catered to tourists sometimes, catered to the locals, they were like coffee houses. They didn't have cabaret licenses, so anything that happened entertainment-wise was had to be for free. First up, there were the Basque Fancy Houses. Uh, that was the lowest level. Um, Richard most of them. And then there were places that actually paid something, like uh, the bitter end of the gaslight in Greensville City. But most places were basket house houses. The idea of a basket house was none of the club owners paid you to play. You would walk in with your instruments, play a set. I mean, you had to be good enough. I mean, not just anybody could do it. Uh, and then pass a bread basket around and people would fill it with money. Maybe on a great Saturday night you might get seven bucks worth of change in there. Then you'd pack up and go to the next one. And on that same circuit were John Hammond, Richie Havens, Jose Feliciano, John Sebastian, and various incarnations of different groups he had. All of us did it. And we would have food manners on Saturday nights in a, I remember, I think it was a room at the YMCA on 23rd Street. Pete Siegel was often the MC. People like Reverend Gary Davis would be there, and my friend John Harold and some of the Greenbrier boys, various people. And we'd all sit in a big circle and each sing some songs and uh, sing some songs together. And it, it was all like one singing. Routinaries were most important. They were, and they were also called windings. They were places where people got together, and uh, they were great incubation points. And people came to them. They were very vibrant, and people uh, were honing their skills. And uh, not just the routinaries, but there was Washington Square Park. That was a great gathering place every Sunday. And uh, there was a fountain, and people came around. The uh, people were singing songs and playing their guitars and banjos and uh, exchanging, you know, swapping songs and whatever. And people were coming from all, from all over the world, and everyone knew in Washington Square what the place to be. While well, keen to establish itself within this new thriving environment, Dylan also had another priority. 30 miles west of Greenwich Village, Woody Guthrie was interned at Greystone Park State Hospital in New Jersey, suffering from Huntington's disease. Since his introduction to Guthrie's work, Dylan, like fellow Greenwich Village musician Rambling Jack Elliott, had begun to imitate not only the musical style, but also the mannerisms of the ailing old artist, and his itinerant non-conformist lifestyle and ragged persona had proven inspiration. Over the following year, the young folk singer from Hibbing, Minnesota, was a regular visitor at Guthrie's bedside, and the pair became close friends. They came looking for me. They came looking for me. Woody spoke a lot of people for his independent style, which I assume the younger people of that generation try to emulate. The independence and the, the willingness to go a different way and the normal way, and breaking away from family times. Living part hobo, getting down to a trade or a job. You know, it was a great experiment. People like 
Pete Seeger were very radical politically, and of course had been through the whole McCarthy-like era, but they were at the same time very respectable, uh, very bourgeois, if you like, um, earnest uh, 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 about their causes and about their music. Guthrie and his followers, like Lambert Jacaria, represented a different strand of the folk tradition, which was much earthier, which was uh, closer to the common people, for want of a, 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 a better phrase. And, uh, you know, of course, Guthrie took to the road and uh, was a, a, a rambling, gambling man who, who rode the rails. There's that outlaw quality to it. So that strand of folk music is probably far more attractive to teenagers steeped in 50s rock and roll than, than the rather serious, dare I say, co-faced Pete Seeger approach to, to the music. Back in 1927, I had a little farm and I called that heaven. Well, the price is up and the rain come down and I hauled my crops all into town. I got the money, bought clothes and groceries, fed the kids and raised the family. Rain quit and the wind got high and a black old dust storm filled the sky and I swapped my farm for a Ford machine and I poured it full of this gas eileen and I started rocking and rolling over the mountains out towards the old peach bowl. Tillam was quite genuine in his love and admiration for Woody Guthrie. I mean, it's not a case of him cynically trying to ride on Guthrie's coattails. He goes out to the hospital and visits him, and uh, you know, I think he's, he's, he's genuinely in awe of the man. But there's no doubt that because Guthrie warmed to Dylan and took him as a, a kind of unofficial protege in a way, that this helped Dylan enormously back in Greenwich Village. There's a story that when Dylan first visited Guthrie in hospital, Woody gave him um, a card which said on it, I'm not dead yet. And uh, Dylan went flashing this all around uh, 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 Greenwich Village. So, you know, he, he, he literally was carrying Woody Guthrie's calling card. So, yeah, it was an enormous help to him to have the support of such an influential figure. That said, you know, I mean, he'd, he'd have made it anyway. It might just have taken him a little bit longer. Having performed on the Greenwich Village circuit, albeit briefly, and having established contact with his musical hero, within the first two weeks of his arrival in New York, Dylan also headed to Izzy Young's Folklore Centre, a small shop that offered both materials for study and a gathering place for the local folk artists. It started off as a bookstore selling folk music books, but also sold records and music instruments, and then this wonderful guy, Izzy Young, who put it together, he also had little store concerts. So it was really a center. Every time one of these people came in from out of town, the first place they'd go would be to the folklore center, and you could find out what's going on. Not just a half a block away with all these little clubs, coffee houses, and so on. But I think what was going on in the folklore center was, at least for me, was the center of it. Because you could look at records from all over the country. You could look at books, old books, song books, photographs of singers, the instruments hanging on the wall, and other musicians would come in there. Anybody's entitled to my store. I would lend books to people. I had records in the store for all the new folk music records, and I had a, a copy of each one. 
I still remember uh, people were looking one or two, but the person that looked through every damn record I had was Bob Dylan. And I didn't know him from nobody. He just worked in the store one day. But he knew what he was doing long before he went to New York City. It's a lot of belonging that all. To New York City, wow, wow, things are happening all over, wow, wow. But he was ambitious long before he came to New York. He was borrowing records from all his friends and not returning them and you know, things like that. So he was listening to every fucking thing he could listen to. Uh, my place was the place where he could relax. By February 1961, Dylan was performing regularly at the Cafe Noir, the Commons, and the Gaslight growing in confidence within this new and more competitive environment. Yet the larger upmarket venues such as Gerdy's Folk City, the Limelight and the Village Gate remained off limits. Dylan's act not yet refined enough to gain him access to the top tier of the village circuit. He approached me for an audition and I said, okay. I uh, took him to a coffee shop that opened at five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, it was called the Caricature. There's caricatures all over. Uh, his coffee house, and there was a woman who had a full-time job earlier, and she opened at five o'clock, and so we went over there. It was, it was empty and quiet, and so, and he performed a few songs. I must tell you personally, I wasn't impressed. And the reason is, you know, I said, you know, I, I know what he got through. I, I like his stuff, and Jack Elliott was around doing that stuff, and I said, then besides it. I was too crazy about that sound, you know. I, I know. I know it wasn't his natural sound, you know, but he wasn't an open. <laughs> so, um, I, I just wasn't impressed at that point. And besides, <clears throat> I didn't know at that point, early in that point, how much it would have helped me in my place, the village gate, to put such a performer in. Um, I did take unknowns, but there wasn't that much of an emphasis for me to take him on at that point. Yet where some of the older guards saw only another Woody Guthrie imitator, other young artists on the village scene quickly took notice of this new arrival and were very aware that Dylan offered something new. The first time I saw him, in the 61 at, at Hoot Night on Monday, his phrasing obviously was part a total rasp on traditional plus rock and roll. And I've considered like you know, rock and roll, which I adore, and folk music, which I adore. These you know, never, the, never the twain shall meet. They're, 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 they're two. One, one, one is from the mountain, one is the sea. They can never possibly, possibly find happiness together. And Dylan had like put them together. I'm not talking about Dylan going electric and I'm talking about his, like, like, like singing, his phrasing. And I realized that these two disparate, you know, like, like loves of mine were actually capable of being. A singularity which blew my mind. I mean, like, like the guy, I mean, like, I thought, like, that guy can, that guy can really sing. He can, you know, like, Dylan can't sing. I mean, what? <laughs> Dylan quickly progressed on a scene that was itself blooming. Having been accepted into the circles surrounding prominent members of the folk establishment through his friendship with Guthrie, including Pete Seeger, Alan Lomax, and Jack Elliott, he also took up with his contemporaries on the scene. These fellow developing musicians, Mark Spalestra, Richard Farina, and Dave Van Rohn, among many others, provided not only a close-knit social group, but also a well of musical ideas and independently discovered material, which Dylan would actively absorb. 
By April, he secured a supporting slot opening for John Lee Hooker at Gurdy's Folk City, and by May he began to incorporate two of his own early compositions into his sets. Still seen as only one of a number of budding folk singers, however, Dylan pressed the New York Times folk critic Robert Shelton to review one of his shows, keen to rise to greater prominence. When Shelton finally agreed, the resultant review, published on the 29th of September 1961, immediately established Dylan as an artist to watch. The New York Times was an immensely powerful newspaper, and Shelton was the folk music critic. I mean, he knew all the, all, not just the folkies, I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd know Woody Allen, and he'd worked some gigs by, by Bill Cosby and Greenwich Village. He really had his finger on the pulse. Um, was respected, was, was by all accounts pretty incorruptible. I mean, you know, he, he, he reviewed straight down the line. And I don't think you can underestimate the impact that Robert Shelton's review of Bob Dylan had when it appeared in the New York Times. I mean, this put him so far ahead of his contemporaries. I mean, the fact that the New York Times had a designated folk critic at this point tells you how booming the, the, the folk revival is. Um, and I think Shelton recognised that uh, Dylan was something quite this was not the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary. It wasn't even Joan Byers and Odetta. It was coming from, from somewhere else completely. People started taking notice of him. Robert Shelton did this killer article on him in the New York Times. And, and that was the first time we had a sense of there was some, that some of us might rise to anything above nanny status or just sitting around jamming at somebody's house or whatever. And then, of course, by then, Joan Baez, who was part of the Boston contingent of folk music, which was a very healthy scene in and of itself, she had a record out. Odetta had a, an album out by now. So we were starting to get a glimmer that this could go somewhere beyond the living room or, or Gertie's on a Monday night. Dylan himself was soon to have an album of his own. Before the Shelton article had been published, the young folk singer had encountered Columbia Records producer and talent scout John Hammond at a recording session for fellow village artist Carolyn Hester. On October the 26th, 1961, nine months after his arrival in New York, Dylan was offered a contract with Columbia. Yet the Shelton article and his signing to a major label didn't propel the singer to the top of the village scene overnight. In autumn 61, Izzy Young, the owner of the Folklore Center, had offered to step in as Dylan's makeshift promoter. Yet his attempts to launch the artist as a major draw in his own right proved fruitless. There would be in my store uh, two, three, four, five, six musicians there all the time. So then I could see, hey, this guy's really good. She's too good. I could put a castle with them. So I had luxury. I could choose what I wanted. You know, the clubs in the village, they had to wait till somebody could get 200 people or 400 people. And so uh, I was so sure that Bob Dylan would fill up a theater, a small theater at Carnegie Hall. And I said, let's do a concert. I was blowing my head off. I took an ad in the paper. I had a newsletter writing it. I was telling everyone, this is the best I've ever heard in my life. I would have bet a million dollars to run that that place should be packed up. Well, there were some 300 seats, 320 or 280, something like that, about 300. And 52 people came. 
and 300 people remember the concert now. Shortly after this show, Dylan entered Columbia Studios to record his self-titled debut. Now keen to distance himself from familiar criticisms of being imitative, the young musician decided to abandon his repertoire of Guthrie songs and tackle folk standards and traditions, some of which he had appropriated from his peers. Although the LP would not prove a commercial success, it nevertheless provided evidence that even at this early stage, Dylan represented something new and original in a scene that was so bound up in tradition. Dylan's first album is an incredible record that a 20-year-old made. And you look at the face staring out at you from the cover, this baby face, ingenue, you know, and then you listen to this white blues singer inside the record. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a record that's about Dylan the performer, really, because there are only two of his own compositions on it. But what a performer he is. traditional folk stuff. You know, there was a lot of humor in it, though, and there was, you know, a sense of an individual personality emerging, which was something that, you know, in a certain way, the idea of folk music, like, the people, like, not you, the individual. Like, there was an element in folk music that your kind of individuality was supposed to be kind of muted, and you were supposed to be singing these songs as a kind of tribute to the larger community that they emerged from. Like, Dylan was not doing that from the very beginning. Dylan was doing Bob Dylan versions of these songs. I mean, some of which were you know, good, or some of which were not that good, but they were very much him. when his voice really started to get out. A great singer in about a dozen different modes. And you listen to that early stuff and you hear humor and imagination and a sense of possibility and a sense that he really admires these songs he's singing, but that doesn't mean he's their slave or that he wants to replicate them. He wants to own them. He wants to take these things he loves and make them better as he makes them his. I was born in Dixie in a boomer's shack, just a little shanty by the railroad track. Great grandmother taught me how to cry, I'm gonna love the drivers and the lullaby. I got the great train blue. Dylan, at this point, 
is the most incredible sponge, and I don't use that in a derogatory uh, sense because uh, you only ever learn anything by being a sponge and soaking everything up. And uh, he has soaked all this up as a performer. And then you've got his two first recording compositions on there, the best of which is his homage to Willie Guthrie, which is heartfelt and already probably streets ahead of the songs that anybody else is writing at this time. Hey, hey, Willie Guthrie, I wrote you a song. You know, in retrospect, it's completely unsurprising and unremarkable that Robert Shelton should have walked into Dirty's and said, Holy mackerel, I like folk music, but then there's this. You know? He changed everything. And I'm just talking about musically now, which is supposed to be where he isn't, where he's not much, doesn't have much of a voice, and all that crapola. We're not talking about the songwriting, which ultimately, he's also the person who instigates that. I mean, there are exceptions. There are other people writing their own songs by then, but not that yet. And Dylan's own songwriting output began to develop at a prodigious rate after the recording of his debut. Although he was composing occasional songs while back on the Minneapolis scene, his immersion in the Greenwich Village folk world fully liberated his creativity, and by January 1962, on the back of the new material he was producing, John Hammond secured Dylan his first music publishing deal. This led to the recording of a seven-track demo, which collected together songs that the artist had mostly penned during the previous year. I think the early Bob Dylan songs, and there's only two on the debut album, uh, and you know, I wouldn't put money on him being the spokesman of a generation of that evidence. But I mean, he was like prolific, he churning stuff out. Um, you know, um, beer mats and napkins and envelopes. I mean, he was just churning this stuff out. And a lot of the early Dylan compositions were his lyrics to existing tunes. I mean, uh, Hard Times in New York Town came from a dirty song called uh, Down on Penny's Farm. Um, Rambling Gambling Willie Care, the tune that's been Brennan on the Moor by, by the Clancy Brothers. And, Tommy Macon, who didn't want to see me on Green Philly for the time. Oh, New York City is a friendly old town. From Washington Heights to Harlem on down. There's not a minute people in the middle and all around. And keep moving you up and not feeling you down. It's hard time. On the country, looking down in New York town. We're the weak and the strong and the rich and the poor. Yet where this early material lyrically conformed to either semi-autobiographical folk or traditional blues forms, by the end of January 62, Dylan's prolific pen turned unexpectedly towards contemporary protest songs. This shift in subject matter was not only traceable to the times themselves, but also to Dylan's girlfriend during this period, Suze Rotolo, who had moved into the singer-songwriter's apartment at the start of the year. When Dylan met she was 17 years old, but she came from this radical American-Italian family. Her sister, Carla, was working for Alan Lomax, so that opened certain doors. And Suze was uh, you know, full-on radical political activist. 